0: Please be seated. Well, after a few weeks of um, moving off of our, our regular path for graduation of the college students, recognizing them, and for Mother's Day, we come back to our series studying the gospel according to John. So i invite like you to open your Bibles to John chapter 7 this morning. We'll be looking at this passage this morning and then uh, verses 25 through 36. And next week we will finish this chapter uh, and then we'll move into our summer series, uh, which for the most part this summer will be uh, what we're calling Postcards from God. We'll be looking at the, all of the single, single chapter uh, books of the Bible during the course of this summer. but. The summer is longer than there are single-chapter books, so some of the postcards will be a little longer than, you know, but you've all received postcards that are not only written on the proper spot, but people writing on the other side, too. That's what we'll be doing during the course of this summer, looking at both the ones that are within the lines and the ones that are on both sides, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll begin that in a couple of weeks. For this morning, the word of God that we read. John 7, beginning our reading in verse 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and reach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The word of our God. Let's go to our God in prayer. Our Father, as we come to this portion to worship, we give ourselves to the hearing of your voice through your word by your Spirit. We prepare that we would not just come as those are to process information, but we ask that you would prepare our minds as well as our hearts to receive what you would have us to hear that you would give us minds and eyes to not only see what you have revealed here, but the ability to recognize the need of our own hearts, that you might shape us by your word, and so doing, conform us to be more like Christ. For this is the ultimate act of worship, is that we submit ourselves to you, and we see the fruit of your spirit, making us more like Jesus, being born within us. Lord, would you be at work even in these moments that we consider this word that you have given to your glory, by your grace for our good, we pray in Christ, amen. Earlier, in a a moment of, of quiet, or at least some respite with his core disciples, Jesus had asked his disciples some questions. Who do people say that I am? And then, who do you say that I am? How we answer those questions is of inestimable significance. One is just a test of knowledge. Who is it that people claim Jesus to be? Uh, But even more important is, who is Jesus to us? Penn State sociologist Stephen Prothrow in his 2003 book, American Jesus, which is subtitled How the Son of God Became a National Icon, considering that question of who do people say that I am, wrote this, to hold Jesus up to the mirror of American culture is to conduct a Rorschach test of ever-changing national sensibilities. What Prothro is touching upon both in that statement and throughout the whole book is the whole idea that the question of who Jesus is, who do we say Jesus is, has moved from the objective reality that Jesus was asking for us to respond to, to the subjective of, of he seems to become whoever we think that he is. And Protho goes on in that book and he makes the statement He says, Jesus may be the same yesterday, today, and forever, uh, but depictions of him have varied widely from age to age and community to community. At least in the United States, Jesus has stood not as some unchanging rock of ages, but on the shifting sands of economic circumstance, political calculations, and cultural trends. In fact, the American Jesus has been something of a chameleon. And Prothrow goes on not with any intent to be denigrating Jesus, but recognizing just what we as a culture have done and focusing on Jesus. And he describes throughout the book the different characterizations that he has observed, some of them uh, in our culture, talking about people who would say, well, Jesus is, is to me the enlightened sage, and others who might say Jesus is a superstar, and others who would declare Jesus a cultural warrior and others who just focus on the BFF Jesus. He's my buddy. He is my best friend. And as I read that and I think about that, I, I see what Prothro is touching upon that is a reality of our culture. And, and what he's doing is what I tend to describe as Ricky Bobby theology. Now, some of you know exactly what I mean by that. In the movie, Talladega Nights, probably one of the most uh, um, memorable scenes is as Ricky Bobby played by Will Ferrell is sitting around the table and before they uh, eat their supper of assorted fast foods they do the commendable thing of realizing that they need to go and to thank God and to pray and so Ricky Bobby who uh, Will Ferrell begins to praying to you know baby Jesus in his diapers and when his wife pointed out that Jesus did grow up and became a man His response was, but I prefer baby Jesus. When you pray, you can pray to whatever Jesus you want to. When I pray, I want to pray to baby Jesus. And then there goes on an absurd discussion of their ideas of what they like to picture Jesus as. And I think the reason it's so memorable is because it's also so common. While it's absurd in the way it's done in the movie, we tend to overlook that when we see the uh, people around us doing that, or even the same propensity that we have to do that same thing. And yet the question that our text begs of us is the same question that Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Touching on the same subject, R.C. Sproul once wrote, there are so many portraits of Jesus in the galleries of this world that it seems hopeless to clarify the confusion they have wrought in people's minds about who Christ is. So many conflicting images of him are put forward that some people have despaired of achieving an accurate picture of his true identity. And yet, coming to an understanding, an accurate understanding of his identity is exactly what we must do because salvation is found in no one else. Scripture has declared to us there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. And because of that significance, Jesus here, as he's interacting with the crowds that have gathered for the feast of the tabernacles, he is identifying himself and drawing out of them their own responses, their own ideas of who it is they say he is. In fact, while Jesus was teaching and not even necessarily interacting, the people were already buzzing about that. What We see at the beginning of this particular passage are the people who are gathered uh, around. And they're asking the question, is it possible that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah? So that question was on the minds of many of the people and their rationale was this. They seemed to be aware that there was a plot to seize and to kill Jesus. And yet, here Jesus is out in the open, teaching boldly, an easy target, and nobody makes a move on him. And so the people that are not the leaders, knowing that that was the plan of the leaders, began talking amongst themselves and saying, is it possible that the leaders have figured out that he's actually the Messiah? I mean, why else would they not make the move that they said that they were going to do? And yet they are stuck with a question. Is it possible? And yet other stuff that we know would seem to suggest that he is not. If we work our way through this passage this morning, there's a couple of things that we need to note that will be helpful to us. One is that the driving question of this passage is, who do we say Jesus is, or could he actually be the Christ? That's the question that permeates the whole passage, and yet the passage is framed by two other questions. Where did Jesus come from? And where is it that Jesus is going? And those will serve as our outlines, but the answers that we gain from Jesus' response to those questions helps us in our understanding of who Jesus is.
1: And in between those
0: two questions, we'll also look, stop and take a look at their response to Jesus as they seek to arrest him. And so, as those of you who are taking notes, the first point will be the answer to the question of where did Jesus come from? The second will be the attempted arrest. And then the final point will be where is it that Jesus is going? So we look at the, the passage and begin with the question where did Jesus come from? Because the people were asking, can he be the Messiah? We see the first hesitancy in accepting that fact. In verse 27, they said, but we know where this man comes from, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he came from. What they are wrestling with is what appears to be somebody who is worthy, both from his wisdom and the power that he's demonstrated through his miracles, of being one sent from God to be the deliverer that had been promised. And yet, what they had been taught from their Sunday school and the TV preachers and around the coffee pot of their culture. They had this idea that when the Messiah came, he would have no origin. Now, that might have been rooted in the whole idea that they were told that the Messiah would come and be like one, like Melchizedek, who had neither beginning nor end. He just kind of shows up one day to bless Abram, receives worship, and the tithe disappears forever. We're told that he had no beginning or end. We don't know where he came from, no ancestry. And because that's one of the characteristics of Melchizedek, I'm not sure why my voice is gone today and not on others, but uh, at any rate, they seem to have hanged on to that particular understanding which actually is a misunderstanding. It's not true that the scriptures don't give us any clue as to where the Messiah would come from. I mean, for one, in, in the, uh, the book of, of Micah, we see the declaration that the Messiah would come from the little town of Bethlehem. And there's a number of clues about where the Messiah would come from, but they had been taught this and they had embraced this and they were uh, actually stifled by this misinformation. It's important that we understand that because misinformation and lack of information is a tremendous stifling to a saving faith for many people uh, that are in our culture. And some of the things that they are basing their understanding on are truths, but they are inadequate truths. Some of the things that they are basing their understanding on are things that they had been taught in their own Sunday schools, or from the pulpits of the churches where they've gone to, or from the TV preachers, or from the non-preachers on the TV shows. Things that we have in our culture where people talk about the need to, they're searching for the historic Jesus, and yet if you were to look at their idea of the historic Jesus, you recognize that they start with preconceived ideas, they eliminate anything that would be miraculous about him, they assume that he was not actually resurrected because, well, people don't die and come back. So they begin with the limitations of their own mind and they try to fit Jesus within to their own paradigm. We see a TV show that's out there right now is called The Story of God with Morgan Freeman, a lot of interesting information. And yet at the end of the day, they do not lifting Jesus up as the one as he has presented himself to be the exalted savior sent by God, but just as a man who did fascinating things and who was a tremendous teacher and in some cases performed at least reportedly certain miracles. And so it's important that we understand that this is not just an ancient problem, but it's a problem today. Many of the people that you may be praying for to come to faith in Jesus Christ. The obstacle to coming to Christ is not Christ himself, but what the misinformation or the lack of information that they have. And so they developed a preconceived idea, and when they declare, I can't follow a God like that, It's because the God that they have in their mind is not worthy to be followed. In one sense, it's rather simplistic, but I remember a friend um, always responding to people with the question, I can't follow a God like that, saying, tell me about the God that you believe in, or tell me about the the Jesus that you believe in, because there's a good chance I don't believe in him either. Because they put the puzzle together, and their puzzle was missing a few pieces. As I read this, I also realize it's not just an issue in terms of evangelism, but it's also true for the people who are believers as well, because we sometimes get into our mind, even though we've come to an understanding, a a sufficient understanding to recognize that Jesus is the one that was sent from God, who is our Redeemer, who died for us and rose again for our salvation. And yet we think that we have exhausted everything that we need to know. We might not say it, but sometimes we find... Jesus is somewhat boring because we begin with these preconceived ideas and we try to fit Jesus within the paradigm of our thought process to utilize him in some way we are also guilty of the Ricky Bobby theology well it doesn't necessarily impact us in terms of our salvation it does in terms of our devotion and we need to remind ourselves that we have not, no matter how much we know, anywhere near exhausted what there is to know about the glory of Jesus Christ. He is unfathomable. And as we grow in our understanding, it moves us deeper to worship and to live for him. We see him revealed in the scriptures. We know the stories, but there's more to the story than sometimes we have at our glance. It's been said that we need to be a people who study the scripture to see the face of our beloved the same way that a soldier who is deployed studies the photograph of the one that he loves. It's a picture that he's seen before, but he continues to look intently and always seems to find something different deepens his love. That's what the scripture does for us, and the Holy Spirit drives us in this. And so we need to recognize what the the problem these people had. They've been given some information, half-truths, errors, and that's influencing the way that they're responding to Jesus Christ. And recognizing that, we are told that Jesus then proclaimed, and the word in the Greek from proclaimed me, that he cried out, he shouted. In other words, the intensity of his voice when he was aware that this was what people were saying was elevated to such a point to draw as much attention as possible to what he was about to say. And we're told that in verse 28 that Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from. But I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true him you do not know. Jesus is gaining their attention. And he does affirm, in, in a sense, yeah, they know him, they know who he is, they know his hometown, but there's also a hint of irony in this. Some of our translations, it's indicated because there's a question mark, and others, the question mark is not there, but as you read the interaction and the consistency of what he declares to a people... Uh, the people that are listening we recognize that while he's affirming them in one sense, he's also undercutting their, um, their confidence in another. It was true that they knew who he was. He was famous enough, well known enough, enough people had known who he was that they would point and they would recognize that that's Jesus, that's the prophet that's been going around doing miracles and teaching in a way that nobody else has ever taught. Many of them knew that he came from Galilee and that was part of their problem. Even some of the ones that were believed that you might know where he came from, they knew he came from Galilee, and their idea was no prophet came out of Galilee. They had no idea that he had actually come from Bethlehem for for many of them. So they knew a lot about him, but they didn't know all there was to know. And Jesus reminds them, look, you do know a lot about me. But you don't know the one who sent me. no difficulty to understand why they got angry with him and got frustrated. But what we need to glean from what Jesus' response to them that we see in verse 30 is that while it is a reasonable question to ask where Jesus came from, Jesus is declaring that it's far more important that we understand who he came from than where he came from.
1: And he declares
0: in verse 29, who it is that sent him, he said, I know him, I come from him, and he sent me. And those three phrases are not incidental. If you unpack them, you recognize what Jesus is declaring, even in those relatively ordinary kinds of claims. When he declares, I know him, the one who sent him, and most of the people understood that he was claiming that he he knows God and you don't, He's declaring not only a knowledge, but an intimacy. And in the, in the word that he's chosen to use, that he has an intimate relationship with the God who created all things. I come from him is a declaration of his origin and his identity. Because who else is going to be come sent from the Father who is in heaven, except for one who has been with the Father in heaven for all eternity? His identity is that he is God. And I am sent... By him declares to us that he came for a purpose and he was on a mission. Who is Jesus? He is God who has come in the flesh, come down from heaven into our into our world in order to redeem a people for his own glory. Jesus declares all of that as he's identifying himself. The people angry, they began to fuss amongst themselves, and we see in verses 30 and 31, they attempted to arrest him. They lost their composure and they seek to seize, They sought to seize him, and yet we are told, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now, whether this was some act of divine intervention or whether this was a providential situation where people wanted to seize him, but they thought better of it, we're not given any details. We're only giving the ultimate cause his time had not yet come. The ultimate reason is that God's sovereignty prevented anyone from take, putting their hands on Jesus, to seizing him, to arresting him, to killing him. It was not yet his hour. It's telling us that this was the wrong time. It was also the wrong festival because he was the Passover lamb who would lay his life down. Now, the great British Anglican theologian, J.C. Ryle said, let us never forget that we live in a world in which God overrules all times and events and where nothing can happen but by God's permission. He goes on and he says, servants of Christ in every age should treasure up this doctrine before us, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, and remember it in times of need. And yet the reality is, As worthy as God is to be worshipped because he is powerful and that Ryle is correct, we ought to treasure up the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The truth is God's sovereignty is perplexing to many people, believer and unbeliever alike. People ask questions that if God is in control of all things, if he's working all things together and he has all power to do that, does God then ordain evil? Why do these bad things continue to happen? And once again, we try to fit God and God's ways into our own paradigm of thinking, and it causes us angst. Or we decide, I'm not going to think about it at all, which has its merits because... As we looked at last week, the scriptures tell us in Psalm 131, we, we don't need to give ourselves to things that are too grateful. I mean, in other words, to focus on things that are only going to bring us angst, but to not think about it at all is also not what scripture uh, teaches because there is a clear declaration in scripture that God is in control of all things. We need to recognize here in terms of treasuring this idea up of God's sovereignty that Romans 12:2 gives us an instruction and it charges us to not be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. and The renewal of our minds required that we think God's thoughts after God. So God has revealed certain things and those are the things that we ponder. We think these things even though God's thoughts sometimes are not in line with the way that we would think. The way he has arranged things to be what he declares truth is not consistent with our instinctive way of aligning facts up what we would consider true. But here in the declaration of his hour has not yet come, we're faced with God's sovereignty. And it's a truth that we need to be thinking about. We need to be thinking about God's sovereignty in line with many other revelations of what God has said about himself, particularly in this case, God's goodness. And in a sense, we need to shift our thinking from taking what God says into our paradigm and begin to think, how do these things work together? What is the picture that is being painted by the way that God has revealed himself? And what would be reality if what he has put together and says is true is really true? Some would call that mindless and I would just call it perspective. We're not called to check our minds and to not think. We're called to think what God has revealed, think about those things, and look at things from another perspective. Rather from our perspective we look at things from the perspective that God has revealed. Some of you have probably seen those drawings and it says what is it you see and you know, the first time you look at it you see one thing and somebody points out something to you and then you see another image entirely. Both images are there but it's simply a matter of perspective. And to some extent, that's what we need to be doing in renewing our minds so that we see the way God sees things, and so we can rejoice and celebrate the truth that God has revealed, even if it doesn't make sense to a lot of people, even if at one time it didn't make sense to us. But we are in renewing our minds, and and here is a classic example that we are called to celebrate the sovereignty of our God. The amazing thing is, too, as we look at this particular passage is that while many of the people were angry at what Jesus said, we're also told in verse 31, many people believed in Jesus. Because of what he's done, because of what he was teaching, how he responded to the circumstances, all of those things were at work, and God was using them to draw people to himself to work these things together for their good, for their salvation. And so we see that even as things are going in a way that we would consider not good. And I don't know about you, but if, if I was Jesus in Jesus' shoes there and, and I'm teaching and you all came up and tried to uh, um, arrest me and beat me and throw me in jail, I would consider that not a good day. And yet we get, look behind the curtain and seeing that God's still at work and working out his purpose even what seems to be difficult. So we move on. We now pick up again with the the third kind of point is this, is the question of where Jesus is going. In verse 32, we're told this, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering the things. In other words, the ones that were believing because their logic that we're told is Many believed in him. They said, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so their faith, their trust is, is being put in him. The Pharisees, they, they um, heard people talking about that, realized they were losing ground. So they sent people to arrest Jesus. And when the people came to arrest Jesus, Jesus, aware of that, he seems to be responding to the circumstance. And he declares at that point, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. And where I'm going, you can't find me. Where I'm going, you can't come. Now, in a little while I'm going away, we can put that in chronology. This festival took place about six months prior to Jesus going to the cross. He was aware that six more months until he would be crucified. But the far more perplexing question for them and for us is, where is it that Jesus was going to go? And where is it that he would go that people wouldn't be able to find him and that they can't go? Or what they heard is they wouldn't go. Now, it's interesting, if you look at the passage, their instinct in hearing this, their question was to start thinking about all the places they wouldn't go. Where is he going to go? That's a reasonable question. Is he going to go to the, to the Greeks? And then start teaching them and and reaching them and and bringing the gospel to the Greeks. And and the implication here is that would be a good place for him to go because we want nothing to do with those people. If he goes there, we'll never find him because we're not setting foot into their territory. In one sense, to hell with them.
1: It would be a good place to
0: hide. It was the only thing that they were able to think of. But Jesus had far more in mind than simply going and ministering to a people who ironically he would go to, but not in his own body, but through his disciples. There are two places that I think, one that is clearly evident, but one is the also that he went to on his way. Ultimately, the reality is that Jesus would be going to heaven. And only a matter of days after he was crucified and rose again, he would ascend to be with God the Father. It's the ultimate in hide-and-seek, isn't it? I mean, he's no longer anywhere on this earth. You can look all you want to, you're never going to find him. Before he went there, where he's saying they couldn't go, he is also saying that I'm going someplace that no one else can go. Because he was going to the cross. And while other people may be executed for their faith or for their crimes, whatever reasons they are executed... Jesus is the only one who went to the cross in order to be a redeemer because that's the mission for which God sent him. It's because he went to the cross that he opened the door that those who believe would be able to actually find him. But Jesus is speaking to an unbelieving crowd, people who are trying to seize him, and saying, where I am going, you cannot go. You will never find me. In other words, as one commentary put it this way, you may seek me, but you'll not find me because your unbelief has rendered you unable to understand where I am. And what he was saying is that the people who did not believe both as a people group and symbolic of an entire world is because they rejected Jesus when he was on earth and after he died and after he rose again and they decided that he couldn't possibly be the Messiah that they were waiting for. The entire people group is continuing to look for a Messiah that is coming and they'll never find that Messiah that Jesus has identified as himself. You'll be looking for a Messiah, but I'm the Messiah. You'll never find the Messiah because I'm him and you rejected it, and I'm gone. And because you rejected me. And because, therefore, you have no Messiah. You'll never be able to come where I am or where you say you want to be. In this passage, which is really not... I wouldn't consider this one of the more beautiful passages, but there is a beauty even in the ugliness and in the awkwardness of this particular passage. We see Jesus boldly teaching and people who are both questioning and believing. It's a picture of the world that we live in. And he's identifying himself of where he came from and who he is and where he is going and what his mission is. Depending upon whether you believe him to be the Christ or not, determines whether or not you will see him and be with him. I'm going to leave the last word to Bible scholar Dale Bruner. He says, Jesus did not come to give the world another interesting option for consideration. He came claiming ultimacy. His purpose is to move all who hear him to decide to place their trust in him, to be baptized, to join his church of word, fellowship, Eucharist, and prayer. The only option is, who do you say Jesus is? For Those who believe to be with Christ and those who reject, you're on your own.